0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at the history of NATO and its role in the world after the fall of the Soviet Union, which has come back into focus due to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, sparking previously neutral countries to request NATO membership, all while an eye to the future causes speculation on how NATO should respond to the growing geopolitical influence of China. You got all that? Clips today are from The Real News, American Prestige, Democracy Now!, and World Review, with additional members-only clips from The Real Story and Today
1: Explained. We'll talk about the history of NATO in a moment, but how would you say the alliance has remained relevant since its foundation after World War II?
2: NATO has been in constant uh, what they call adaptation since 1950 and the first what they call strategic concept. The strategic concept really sets the direction of travel for the alliance for the next decade. We're about to have a new one in 2022. I think the most obvious example of that was in 1999 when NATO went out of so-called NATO area. There was a big debate whether NATO would stay within its very strict Euro-Atlantic area or engage in security threats beyond its traditional treaty area. And that was because NATO was also shifting from collective defence to crisis management. So it is in the nature of NATO, the alliance to adapt, to transform and change. It's always done that. And it's about to do it again, big time.
1: Let's just go back and unpack the history a little bit more. Claudia, remind us why NATO was created.
3: NATO was created actually as a life insurance for the European countries after World War II. It was about defending a free Europe against the Soviet Union and keeping the U.S. in Europe. Um, that was one of the key lessons Europeans actually had to learn after World War One, after World War II, that the security is linked to a strong U.S. commitment to Europe. So it was actually teaming up as free European countries to defend the political idea, this free Europe against the Soviet Union. And this was the core task at the beginning. Collective defence against the Soviet Union, could simply, have NATO strong, so not be obliged to use it. That's an interesting thought to say. If you have a strong deterrence and a strong defence, in the best case, there will not be a war. Well,
1: let's, because it's nice to revel in a bit of history, let's have a reminder of the birth of NATO.
4: Pentagon in Washington, the North Atlantic Defense Committee composed of the 12 Atlantic Pact nations meets for the first time. US Defense Secretary Johnson is named chairman. Mr. Johnson speaks of America's desire for unity against aggression. We in the United States, gentlemen, insist that peace today can be chiefly assured through strength. Our combined military strength and economic strength
1: that's the then U.S. Defense Secretary, Lewis Johnson, uh, as reported by British Patho back in 1949. That foundational idea took NATO through the Cold War. After the collapse of communism, NATO's focus undoubtedly changed. There was big expansion. How do you think it changed in those years after the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union?
5: Well, there are two things. Um, and I'm not sure that this is a change. Uh, NATO's focus was always security. And during the Cold War, there was a grave and immediate security threat from the Soviet Union. And many countries were dominated by the Soviet Union. Central and Eastern Europe had Soviet troops on their territory. They were not able to choose their own governments democratically. So they were basically behind an iron curtain, as we said, off limits. When first the Berlin Wall came down and then the Soviet Union fell, these countries were now able to come back to a European family that they had always belonged to. And so they were seeking the same types of security for the future that the Western European members of NATO had had all along. The second is that there are other parts of Europe, and Julian mentioned this in terms of crisis management and projection of security, other parts of Europe, such as in the Balkans, where states collapsed, the former Yugoslavia collapsed, you had ethnic wars and, and religious wars and risks of ethnic cleansing, Serbs, Croats, Albanians, etc. And NATO decided to intervene in order to stop the blood, stabilize the situation on the ground, and eventually create a pathway for long-term sustainable development of democratic systems market economies and security. So these two-fold aspects, one of them was bringing in countries that had been frozen out for a long time, and the other being able to project security to areas where security had collapsed.
6: So why don't you just set the scene for what was happening in the late 1980s, early 1990s, um, when uh, the Soviet Union um, is really on its final legs. Now, the the way the story is usually told is that the Berlin Wall signals the end of the Cold War, you know, formal hostilities and informal hostilities between the United States and Soviet Union. And then, of course, in December 1991, the Soviet Union, after various socialist republics themselves kind of voted to secede from the Soviet Union, essentially uh, collapses. And then we, of course, have various rounds of NATO expansion over the 1990s and 2000s. So Josh, why don't you just start at the beginning of the story, wherever you think it's most important?
7: Sure. So, so that's a really good introduction. So let's back up, though, really to the beginning, right? Because the heart of the Cold War, at least in Europe, was this question of the future of Germany and this question of whether uh, Germany would be, would be one state, two states. And if it was going to be one state, how would it be aligned? Would it be aligned with the US? Would it be aligned with the USSR or something in between? And this, what became known as the German question really drove many of the strategic calculations of the U.S., the USSR, the smaller European actors. So at the contest, this is well-recounted in Mark Trachtenberg's excellent book, A Constructed Peace. So just take that as a given because when the Berlin Wall falls in November of 1989, it's both the epitome and the starting gun that this, that this German question, whether Germany would be unified. And if so, whether it would be aligned with the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union or with the US and NATO or neutral was going to be back on the European agenda. And after this, and, and, and this is relevant because the US doesn't want to see that what was then West Germany. Uh, Out of its alliance system, worrying that doing so would collapse NATO. And the Warsaw Pact under the Soviet Union was keenly aware that if East Germany left left the alliance, that the Warsaw Pact would also collapse and Soviet influence in Europe would be in total arrears. So the fall of Berlin Wall was the starting signal of a bunch of problems coming down the pipeline. And so after a period of hemming and hawing, it became clear at the very end of 1989 into early 1990 that indeed Germany was going to reunify in some way, shape or form, raising this question, well, where would it be aligned with would it be neutral? Would it be in one camp or another? And the Soviets uh, were trying to slow the process down, even though the Germans, West Germans in particular, really wanted to accelerate the process. And so in early 1990, we kind of reached this decision point. We, the United States, reached this decision point of saying, okay, we're going to allow, we're going to support German reunification, but we want the result to be a unified Germany within NATO. We do not want to see a unified Germany outside of NATO because the U.S., again, wants to retain influence via NATO in what will be post-Cold War Europe. And the U.S. certainly doesn't want to see a unified Germany aligned with the Warsaw Pact. That would, you know, that would be verboten. If, if if you were uh, in American policy circles. And so the question became, what would it take to move the Soviets on this issue? Because the Soviets have the opposite preferences. And so in February of 1990, uh, then Secretary of State Jim Baker, then Deputy National Security Advisor Bob Gates and a host of others fly to Moscow. They tell Soviet leaders under uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's government that if the Soviets consent to German reunification within NATO, then NATO would expand would not expand even, quote, one inch to the east. Now, there's been a debate for a very long time over whether that pledge just referred to East Germany, meaning to the east of West Germany, or whether it referred to uh, Eastern Europe and the areas to which NATO later, expand, later expanded as a whole. And I think the documentary record we've had over the last decade or so really settles dispositively that they were referring to a broader pledge that NATO would not go east, meaning into East Germany or further parts. So maybe that,
6: you could actually dig in on that for a second. Why do sure. you think it's so clear that that was the claim? What does the documentary record actually say without reading documents? Sure. So for one thing, uh,
7: American policymakers as and Soviet policymakers were keenly aware that the, the as went East Germany, so went the whole of Eastern Europe. So there was the kind of this broad discussion that all of Eastern Europe is in play, and even the whole of the Warsaw Pact is in some sense uh, in play, point number one. Point number two, when you look at internal American conversations from this period of time, it's clear they're thinking over the future of Europe as a whole, not just the future of East Germany, right? The the question of Germany is embedded in this larger question, but the future of European security order. But let's pretend you haven't read the documentary record. You don't have time to go through it. We don't even need to do that because we now have documentary evidence from a year later, from March 1991, where the quad leaders of NATO, meaning what was Then unified Germany, uh, the, the the political director for the German Foreign Ministry, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, and their French and British counterparts are discussing this question of will NATO expand? Could NATO expand into Eastern Europe as the as then Poland, then Czechoslovakia, and other states then wanted NATO to do? And American and West German and German leaders were very clear in saying. We made a promise to the Soviets last year, meeting in 1990, that NATO would not expand into Eastern Europe. Therefore, we can't act on what the Poles, the Hungarians, the Czechoslovaks all want. So you don't even need to read the political dialogue. We now have speech evidence from people who had need to know what was being promised, saying, yeah, we made this promise or these, these
6: commitments as you were. So I think that this was a historic lost opportunity, the fact that NATO continued yeah. after the end of the Cold War, let alone expanded. So why did the United States – why were they so set on continuing NATO after the end of the Cold War? Um, is it just that they want economic access to Europe? They want to dominate the security order. They want to basically dominate the globe. It's the search for primacy. We need to be prime everywhere for, for now and forever, et cetera, et cetera. Is right. that the basic gist of it? And I'm I'm curious,
5: Josh,
7: if there's
6: anything in the documentary record, like, did anybody consider this question,
7: like, what are we still doing here? The Soviet Union has fallen, Warsaw Pact has fallen, why are we still continuing? Should we think about dissolving or turning NATO into something else or, you know, uh, adopting some other kind of framework? Was there any discussion of that? Well, so let me take the second question from you, Derek, and then I'll turn to Danny's question because they go together very nicely. Derek, to your question, um... There were people calling for transforming NATO into a cooperative security institution, doing away with NATO entirely, and crafting a uh, different European security order. Uh, some people were saying, hey, look, the U.S. only went into Europe after the Cold War. It had to be dragged in. You know, it didn't really want to do it. Uh, you mean after so, so the maybe, end of World War II? After the end of World War II, yeah, excuse yeah, me. Uh, just, the U.S. had no, to be okay. dragged. It didn't really want to do it. You know, with Truman and Eisenhower all wanted the U.S. to get out. So what the heck are we still going to do in post-Cold War Europe? Derek, to your question. The problem is, uh, the the, the latter group saying, what the heck are we doing here? We're kind of called isolationists and we're kicked out of the policy discussion. The Bush administration really isolated, the H.W. Bush administration, excuse me, really isolated them, the policy audience. what Uh, somebody wielding the term isolationist in a (laughs) bad faith way to... (laughs) Criticize, <laughs>
6: uh, never groups. would have happened. I don't no, believe it, Josh. Come on, I, 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 on, on this I, well, on this podcast, we we respect America.
7: Now, what, 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 what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Uh, you might think that I couldn't very, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh also from that time period also but the but the other piece here, this call for a cooperative security order were also coming from a bunch of europeans uh gorbachev in particular, but also some of the eastern europeans and the u s was really worried about it, right the u s didn't like the idea of it didn't think a cooperative security order would work in the first place and also was worried about its own influence, recognizing, for example, that the CSCE, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe was not an institution that was favorable for the United States. So there were these voices pushing for something else, but they were pretty much isolated and, and, and blocked out of the policy agenda. And we should be, we should be clear here. Um, Gorbachev had very little political capital by this time. The Eastern Europeans are all. Uh, seeking economic aid. So their interest in the security order is kind of secondary to these bread and butter issues. So the idea of somehow keeping the broad p- parameters of Cold War era European security intact had a lot of momentum behind it. But Danny, to, to your question, wh- why does that translate into NATO sticking around and why does that translate into NATO then expanding? You raised the questions about economic access. Is it about security? Is it about primacy? I would just say NATO is a Rorschach test. It's whatever policymakers wanted it to be. It checks all these boxes. So for those who think that the U.S. has to prepare the ground for economic influence in Europe and keeping NATO intact and keeping influence over the future of Western European security order uh, is a great way of ensuring some market access to having some leverage on that. For those thinking, hey, maybe the Soviet Union or Russia will come roaring back one day, uh, NATO is a way to hedge against that. There are even those who are worried about the the European Union, which was first getting started at this point in time, transitioning from the EC into the EU, might one day be a security competitor to the United States. And so NATO being around was a way to kind of keep that lid on. That's a primacy agenda. So In some ways, it's the goose that lays the golden egg. It can be whatever you want it to be. And policymakers don't need to decide between these somewhat contradictory impulses. And because primacy and unipolarity are so uh, advantageous to the U.S., some of these problems can just be swept under the rug or some some of the assumptions don't need to be assessed very carefully.
8: You talk about this decision uh, made by Finland's president and prime minister, and the significance of this. It looks like Sweden is, uh, you know, at their side in this.
9: You know, it's again a significant change in the security system in Europe. Above all and first, it is a break of a contract. Finland has a contract with Russia. First contract is from 1948. The second one and the new one from 1992 which described neutrality and friendship between Finland and Russia as the background of their common relations and Finland has not uh, expo- had not canceled these treaties, so they are going against this treaty which is a quite a legal action they are doing the second point is the relations between Euro- central europe or nato and russia while the military spending is about fifteen to one up to now. Now it will be seventy or eighteen to one. And it is obviously that Russia will react. So we have again a continuation of the escalation spiral in the centre of Europe. And this is not peaceful. What should be the next? Should be the next Moldavia and Georgia? Should be the next that we that Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan will join NATO? It will be the next Japan. And what are the reactions of Russia? They will bring more nuclear weapons to the border of Poland and the Baltic countries. They will enlarge their military spending. People on both sides will suffer. So it is definitely a step absolutely on the wrong direction, which is definitely not helpful for coming to a new security architecture after hopefully ending so quick as possible the war in Ukraine. What we need are negotiations and for Finland, which is a history in neutrality. Finland was a country of the OSCE and the KCE K- agreements. There was a meeting we had in Helsinki. This time will be over. Finland will be up, give up his independent, active position, bringing East and West together, only for joining NATO, only for being a very small part in the NATO, NATO architecture. This is really an unpolitical and unsecurity step for a common security system in Europe. And NATO is the biggest military alliance in the world. NATO is the biggest military spender. Sixty percent of the whole money which is spending worldwide is spending by the NATO countries. So, in these NATO su- countries, the NATO summit will send s- signs in the absolutely wrong direc- direction more militarization, more actions against Russia and China, more encircling of these two countries. And we want to protest and convince more parts of the public that this is the wrong way. This is the way in the catastrophe. This is the way in a new nuclear war, which will be the final nuclear war. We cannot do these kinds of politics when you want to solve the climate problem, when you want to overcome hunger. Hunger becomes much stronger since we have the Ukrainian war, how should these people in Africa survive when there are no cops any longer coming from Ukraine and Russia? So we want to say signs that we need an alternative politics. So our summit is a summit for making propaganda and actions for policy of common security, which on the background says we have to take in account the security interests of all countries. And we need nationally and internationally, a process of disarmament. It is not possible to spend any longer two trillion of US dollar for military purposes when people are suffering and when we do not know how to solve the climate problems.
0: Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention, And unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out, so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance, because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said... Nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong.
10: You spoke about the unity of the West, but of course, there is this question as to the membership of Finland and Sweden in NATO. Turkey has indicated that it is not willing to approve those bids for membership. Do you think Finland and
4: Sweden are going to join NATO? Yes, I'm sure at the end of the day, Finland and Sweden will join NATO I also think that the NATO summit by the end of June will be the event in which the two countries are invited to join NATO. By the way, the two countries are already invited to participate in the summit in Madrid. After that, we'll go through a lengthy parliamentary process in all 30 Allied parliaments. In the meantime big allies like the United States, the UK, France and other countries will provide on a bilateral basis the necessary security guarantees to both Finland and Sweden to avoid any uh, Russian attack against the two countries in this interim period. And when you were Secretary General of NATO,
10: did you expect that the alliance would eventually expand to to incorporate Finland and Sweden. I know you've been a very vocal advocate of further expansion uh, to to Ukraine and to Georgia. Did you ever think that this would happen?
4: No, I hoped it would happen, but I didn't expect it uh, because I know the mentality, the discussion in in the two countries. But thanks to Putin, again, that very sad backdrop of his invasion uh, of Ukraine the mentality, the attitude in the two countries changed almost overnight. From only about 15-20% in favor of joining NATO, now it's pretty close to 70% in favor of joining NATO. So Putin has achieved exactly the opposite of what he wanted. He has achieved a strengthened in NATO. He has achieved a NATO that is much closer to Russian borders. You've advocated for Ukraine
10: and Georgia to join NATO. Do you still think they could join NATO?
4: I think NATO should uphold the decision taken back in 2008, when we decided that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, if they so wish. In the meantime, a lot of things have happened. And recently, President Zelensky indicated that Ukraine may be willing to give up its application for membership of uh, NATO. Ukraine may be willing to accept a status as a neutral country. That's for Ukraine to decide. However, if that is going to happen, Ukraine will need another kind of security guarantee instead of the security guarantee they could have achieved through an outright uh, NATO membership. So we will have to discuss which kind of security guarantees could be provided to Ukraine in the case of a non-NATO membership. And that could be the right to have a robust Ukrainian defense. Uh, It could be security guarantees provided by a group of international security guarantors It could be the deployment of an international uh, peacekeeping force, uh, uh, at least temporary, to monitor a peace agreement and also to prevent future Russian attacks against Ukraine. So some of these elements could be discussed in in exchange for the acceptance of a status as a neutral country. What would the difference
10: be between security guarantees issued by a group of countries, many of which would be NATO
4: members and NATO membership? What's the functional difference? Yeah, that's hard to say uh, uh, right now. To become a member of NATO would be to get an ironclad uh, security guarantee because you we all know that the famous Article Five in the NATO treaty states that we consider. An attack on one ally. and An attack on all. So eventually we will come to the age uh, of a country that has been attacked. So I'm sure that had Ukraine been a member of NATO, Ukraine wouldn't have been attacked uh, by Russia. Because Russia would know that would initiate a military conflict with uh, NATO. Whether... And alternative security guarantees could provide the same ironclad guarantee against a Russian attack. That remains to be seen. That's very much dependent on the character of those security guarantees. But actually, President Zelensky asked me to lead a group of international experts to prepare recommendations for uh, the Ukrainian government as to how such security guarantees could be elaborated. And do you have any idea what they might look like? I think, apart from what I've already mentioned, the right for Ukraine to have its own robust defense, security guarantees from a group of international guarantors, possibly a deployment of a peace international peacekeeping force, I think. Such security guarantees should also include a European trajectory where Ukraine is granted a status as a candidate country for the European Union. That's no guarantee of membership, but it's at least it's a goal uh, that you could uh, work towards. And I also think uh, that uh, comprehensive rebuilding efforts of Ukraine should be included in security guarantees.
10: Over the past 30 years, NATO has expanded eastwards, including many former communist countries, uh, which used to be allies of, of, of the Soviet Union and Moscow. Vladimir Putin says that the he fought the war in Ukraine to prevent Ukraine joining NATO and to prevent the expansion of NATO to Russia's borders. Did NATO expansion cause the war in Ukraine?
4: No. <laughs> it was a decision taken in the Kremlin uh, that caused the war. And uh, I think the time has come to really counter that myth that NATO or the Western countries have given assurances uh, to Russia that we wouldn't expand eastwards. Let me remind you that it's not because of a NATO campaign to enlarge the organization that we have seen a number of enlargements uh, since the end of the Cold War. These enlargements are due to former communist states' desire to join NATO to get the Iron Cat security guarantee. And uh, I think instead of accusing NATO of being responsible for a war that has been pro- uh, initiated by Russia, Russia should reflect a bit on why is it that a uh, Russia's neighbors so strongly desire to join NATO to get security guarantees. Obviously, that's because they feel threatened by Russia. If Russia adopted a more friendly attitude towards its neighbors, developments might have gone in another direction. But that's the reason. Uh, why we have a war your green.
8: you can start off by talking about all these developments. As we're broadcasting, President Biden is actually holding a news conference in Madrid. But the increased troop presence in Europe, uh, Poland establishing a permanent base, uh, Finland and Sweden coming in uh, to the alliance and inviting South Korea and Japan, uh, New Zealand and um, Australia to not into NATO, but to this meeting, so they can start to talk more about what NATO is considering um, a threat, China?
11: Well, that's a lot to cover. Uh, I suppose one thing to note uh, is that, uh, as as your report said, I think, uh, today— um, R- Russia announced that it was withdrawing um, from Snake Island in the Black Sea on the coast of Ukraine, which has occupied since the beginning of the war. Uh, and Russia said, of course, it was doing this as a gesture of conciliation. But the general analysis is that Russia uh, was withdrawing from Snake Island because it was simply uh, suffering you know, too many casualties and losses of ships to hold it. Uh, now, You know, I think what that does indicate pretty clearly um, is that, uh, you know, on on top of the way that, you know, Russia uh, was defeated by Ukrainian forces with Western weaponry outside Kiev has been, you you know, fought not quite to a standstill, but almost um, in eastern Ukraine. You know, Russia is not uh, the nearly uh, the military great power uh, that uh, r- the Russians obviously thought it was, but that it was also portrayed as uh, in the West. Um, and in fact, a former NATO Secretary General uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen has uh, has acknowledged this. So you see, there is a, a, a certain dissonance between uh, Russia's actual military strength and performance and NATO's response, because uh you know to to be blunt if if you know if russia takes weeks and weeks to capture one small town in the in in the donbass uh, the thought of it invading poland or, or romania it's it, it's not actually serious in in military terms um and uh, as far as finland and sweden is concerned well you know uh, uh Uh, One understands perfectly why, you know, they have been so alarmed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, But it is also true that Russia has not threatened either of them militarily since the end of the Cold War. So, I suppose that's one thing to point to. I mean, as far as China is concerned, um, there are, I suppose, two points to raise. The, The first is that to have set out On a focus uh, uh, on the Chinese threat, while at the same time being deeply embroiled in, you know, acute tension with Russia and you know backing the other side in a in a in a war with Russia, you know, does not look like you know like wise strategy for NATO. Um, You know, there should have been some attempt to ratchet down tensions with one or the other. I suppose the other obvious point to make is, um, as you said, I mean, NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You know, the the members of NATO are all on or close to the North Atlantic. The United States is there because it is an Atlantic power. To the best of my knowledge, China is not present in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, And it does raise the question both of, you know, whether NATO should whether NATO's charter in fact allows it to deal with China as a threat, or whether you know you, you should have a quite different organisation for that. Uh, but also, of course, whether whether China is uh, actually uh, a threat to um, the North Atlantic countries or such as such, or, or whether it is uh, only in fact a threat to American primacy. In the Far East, which is a very different question.
12: I mean, Anatole, when this uh, uh, announcement was made by NATO to include uh, uh, China, they said that uh, China represents, uh, threatens uh, NATO's, quote, interests, security, and values. Uh, So, and together with making this statement, including China, they also, for the first time, invited countries from uh, East Asia, as well as Australia and New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. Could you explain why you think they did that now and what this implies for the long-term uh, goals of, of NATO
11: there are two reasons. I mean, one is that obviously, as China becomes, you know, more and more powerful, uh, economically stronger and stronger, it does raise, you know, uh, understandable anxieties uh, in the uh, the democratic countries of the West. That, however, you know, is not the same as a security threat to, to, mm-hmm. to Europe, um, and um, the uh, other and as far as values are concerned well you know i was listening to the um to to, to the to the program uh it, it the it's I have to say it's it really seems to me that the obvious threats to Western liberal democracy are internal. You know, they are about, de- you know, all the things that we know about um, socio-economic inequality, demographic change, driving internal extremism uh, and um you know cultural anxieties uh, and china actually ha- has nothing to do with any of this um it's you know to some degree it is actually a distraction and remember i mean you know the, the whole point of nato in the end is to defend western liberal democracy now it, it, it by you know by looking militarily at china even to a degree by not by supporting Ukraine, you understand—that's absolutely right. But by building up this idea of Russia as a massive threat to the West, is NATO really concentrating on the most important dangers to to, to liberal democracy? I, I wonder.
12: And as far as uh, uh, to turn now to uh, uh, the what the situation in Ukraine is, your recent piece for the nation is headlined, A Peace Settlement in Ukraine. If you could elaborate the argument that you make there, and in particular, uh, the point that you make regarding the status of the Donbas and, and, and Crimea and why that must in any uh, a peace settlement be left for future negotiations.
11: Well, uh, the the thing is that the the, the first Russian demand, a, a treaty of neutrality, has actually, in principle, been accepted by President Zelensky. You know, it, it's there on the Ukrainian presidential website. The point being, as Zelensky has said, that uh, before the Russian invasion, he went to NATO countries and asked for a guarantee of NATO membership within you know a reasonable space of time, five years, and they all said no, 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 sorry, you're not going to get in. So. You know, fairly enough, Zelensky said, OK, then why not a treaty of neutrality? Um Now, of course, the Ukrainians have asked for some very, very firm guarantees of Ukrainian security as part of a treaty of neutrality. Those, however, I think we won't go into detail about now, but they are negotiable. You know, we, we can think of some s- some good ways of, of, of addressing that. The territorial issues are Much more uh, complicated because um, there are basically incompatible positions there: the Ukrainian insistence on full sovereignty over, you know, uh, all Ukrainian territory as it existed when Ukraine became independent in 1991, Uh, and the Russian claim of sovereignty over Crimea uh, and recognition of independence of the. Donbass separatist Republics and then there is the issue you know, it, I'm sorry it gets horribly complicated but you know these these the, these issues always are um, there's the point that Russia has recognized the independence of the donbass republics on the whole uh, administrative territory of the Donbass uh, but actually still uh, has not occupied that whole territory you know it, it, half of it is still in Ukrainian hands so it's going to be very hard to negotiate uh, However, the Ukrainians uh, have said that if Russia will withdraw from all the new territory it has occupied since th- the invasion began, uh, Ukraine is prepared uh, to essentially shelve the the previous territorial issues for future negotiation. At least that's what Ukraine said previously, but th- there have been wildly different statements uh, coming out of the Ukrainian government. It's clear that there are well, firstly, that there are deep divisions within the Ukrainian government and elites, and secondly, of course, once again, I mean, very, very understandably, uh, as the war has progressed, as the destruction by Russia has got worse and worse, as you know, there are these, these revelations of Russian atrocities, so naturally, um, the Ukrainians have been more and become more and more embittered, and more and more of them have decided that they have to fight through to total victory. But I think. You know, we also have to recognize that viewed from outside, I mean, I've said that I think it's quite impossible now for Russia to win a total victory in Ukraine, but it does also look very unlikely that Ukraine will be able to win a total military victory over Russia. So in the end, one way or the other, we're going to end up with some sort of compromise.
8: So... Anatole, if you can comment on the G7 reaching an agreement um, around uh, a price cap on Russian oil experts, uh, exports and the backfiring of the sanctions. The New York Times writes, despite the sanctions, Russia's revenues from oil sales have been on the rise of function of soaring fuel prices, while consumers around the world have faced mounting pain at the gasoline um, pump.
11: Well, uh, uh, um, two things about that. The first is that, you know, Western governments should have thought about this before the war, this threat, a very, very obvious one, and done much more to try to avert the war, you know, by seeking, well, for example, the Treaty of Neutrality, which Ukraine has now offered. Uh, Because, I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, not just uh, oil and gas, but food as well. It was perfectly obvious. Uh, that you know massive sanctions against russia uh, would you know have this effect on global energy and and food prices uh, so um you know that's the first thing the second thing is that um look we don't know but there are already you know obvious splits um behind the scenes between both between european governments but also between some european governments and america on you know the approach to the war in Ukraine and a, a peace settlement. And, I mean, European officials I've talked to in, in private have said that, you know, going into the autumn, if, you know, Germany is facing a winter of, you know, a widespread contraction of German industry as a result of a lack of energy, if European governments are going into a winter with energy shortages, with radically higher uh, energy prices. If there are, you know, by then uh, either serious threats of global recession, or if we're already in a global recession, then of course I think you you are likely to see, um, you know, much more pressure uh, for a some attempt at a compromise peace or at least an agreed ceasefire in Ukraine. And what I tried to do in my essay for the nation uh, was to suggest to Western policymakers some of the contours, in in my view, the only viable contours um, of what such a, a peace settlement
2: could look like.
1: The threat to alliance members from Russia is nothing new. And we've really, I think, given a, a good sense of how NATO has wrestled with Russia over the years. But more recently, another nation has been increasingly cited as a real threat to the rules-based order. And that's China. Jens Stoltenberg is NATO's Secretary General. In February, he told our World Affairs editor, John Simpson, that the problem with China is that it doesn't share the values common among NATO member states.
13: We see how China is... Uh oppressing minorities in their own country. We see how they crack down on democratic forces in Hong Kong, but also how they're bullying uh, neighbors, uh, other countries all around the world. The way they have tried to bully Australia, Canada, but also my own country, Norway, when the Norwegian Nobel Peace Prize Committee awarded the peace prize to a Chinese dissident. So the rise of China is something we have to take very seriously. And that's exactly what we do by making this more and more important for the NATO alliance.
11: Some people, of course, say that the best way to stop a nation that's bullying others is to create a formal alliance against them. In this case, perhaps an alliance of maritime democracies. Is that what you're thinking of?
13: NATO will uh, remain a regional alliance, uh, Europe and North America, but we need a global approach uh, because more and more of the threats and challenges we face are global, uh, cyber Terrorism, but also the rise of China. And we are uh, working on how to further strengthen the partnership we have with like-minded democracies, including democracies in the Asia-Pacific, like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea. We're also looking into whether we can have new partners, for instance, in, in Latin America, Africa. But this is not about having a formal alliance, meaning that the security guarantees, the, what we call Article 5, the promise to protect and defend every ally which is, uh, which is attacked. Uh, so an attack on one will trigger the response from the whole alliance. That will not apply. We are not thinking about extending our collective security guarantees, but working with like-minded democracies. I also think that we need to be sure that we maintain our technological edge, China is investing heavily in new technologies, disruptive technologies, and using them in military capabilities. NATO has always had the benefit of having a technological edge. We need to keep that also when we address the rise of China.
11: But we can expect that NATO's priority going forward is China and the rise of China.
13: China... It's becoming more and more important for uh, NATO because the rise of China is shifting the global balance of power, and that matters for us. We also have to understand that China is coming closer to us. We see China in cyberspace. We see uh, China uh, being responsible for disinformation, for instance, uh, related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we also see China investing heavily in critical infrastructure, telecommunications, uh, other types of infrastructure in uh, NATO-allied countries. And we have to make sure that we have resilient societies, resilient infrastructure, which we can rely on in times of peace, crisis and conflict. And then we have to take into account also the risk of foreign investment, foreign control, for instance, by China.
1: NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg speaking to the BBC earlier this year and making it clear that he isn't advocating broadening the alliance, getting away from its geographical definition, but he is talking about shifting priorities. Claudia Mayor, do you share that view that in a way China should become the number one priority now?
3: Not not really. Um, I mean, NATO's core task is the defence of the Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, I think the challenge is that China is already very active in this area, as uh, the Secretary-General outlined. And I think we don't have the luxury actually to choose. We are in a moment what we often call the strategic simultaneity. So we need to deal with big power threats from China and Russia. And these threats take different forms, military, cyber, nuclear, informational. But we also need to keep the ability to deal with the traditional threats like terrorism at the southern flank. And he didn't mention that, but I think it's important to underline we also have a threat from the inside in NATO too. NATO is only as strong as the allies make it. So the greater the divisions in NATO, the more Russia and China will be able to exploit disagreements or coerce or isolate individual allies. So we as NATO, or NATO as an alliance, actually has to deal with both Russia, China and traditional threats like terrorism. But, and that's extremely important, NATO is not able to do it on its own because China is not only a military threat. It's challenging Europe on the competitiveness of our industry to the robustness of our democratic institutions, values like human rights. So we need to think what institution is best placed to address what challenge.
1: It's a very Mm. big thought, and I I want to come back to it. But Kurt Volker, just on the narrow point then, there are many threats. Clearly, NATO has to manage many things. But if we're looking for a priority, a single priority, what's top of that list? Should it be China? Well, I think
5: framing the question in such a way maybe misses the point a little bit, in my view. The priority for NATO is security, the security of its members. What threatens the security of its members? A lot of different things. Cyber attacks, physical military aggression in Eastern Europe from Russia, intervention in our electoral systems, disinformation. China also is a threat, as you're discussing. So all kinds of things. And I think it's kind of misleading to say we're going to choose. We're only going to deal with the Russia threat. We're only going to deal with the China threat. Uh, We're we're not going to deal with the disinformation threat because that's somebody else's business. I think that we need to think of security as a whole. And NATO should be talking about and consulting among the members. Sometimes we'll decide that NATO is maybe not the best instrument for acting in order to protect ourselves against a given threat. But it ought to be the place where we talk about it and decide how do we think about it collectively as allies. What's the best approach? And how do we need to do for our own security?
1: I think both Kurt and Claudia agreed that actually China was one among many and it wasn't perhaps sensible to single it out. I wonder how you would describe China's place in the panoply of uh, of defensive and security issues that NATO has to look at.
14: I think what a previous speaker just said about security being much broader than just defense and how our understanding of security should change actually brings China much closer to NATO and its priorities than it has done in the past. There's a whole host of challenges, of course, from investment in things like critical infrastructure, thinking of ports, national telecommunications and energy networks, to investment in strategic industries that have an impact on our ability to innovate in defense in the future practices of industrial espionage, and of course, disinformation, cyberspace as well. And then of course, there are real military challenges that China poses in our own backyard, such as the PLA Navy's uh, growing blue water uh, capabilities with ships that have sailed to the Baltic and the Mediterranean seas in order to conduct live fire drills and exercises, some together jointly with Russia. Then, of course, China's longer-ranged, more advanced nuclear and conventional missile capabilities as well, which we often frame in the perspective that they can now reach America, the American continent and the U.S.'s shores, but, of course, can also fly the other way and reach Europe as well. So there is a concern for Europe. And I think for NATO, the concern here should be that it isn't going to war with China anytime soon. It should be that NATO allies need to have a coordinated approach, or at least understanding of what the most important challenges are to NATO. And secondly, how to address those challenges collectively.
1: Uh, But that brings us back, Julian Lindley-French, to a point that Claudia was making. It's a very long list that we've just heard from Maya. What institution is best really, to counter the threat from China. Is, is NATO the right one?
2: No, the US is the right power to confront China, along with democracies in the Indo-Pacific region. But look, NATO is built around the United States. Anything that affects the United States affects NATO. NATO's worst case ni- nightmare, and NATO is a, a worst case collective defence alliance at the end of the day, is an America that's overstretched by China's rise as a power, that finds itself facing simultaneous engineered crises in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, possibly the Arctic, and China has declared itself to be a near-Arctic power, and in conjunction with its increasingly important partner, Russia, in which the Americans simply cannot be strong everywhere all of the time. And that's why, clearly, the rise of China impacts upon NATO, because it impacts upon the United States. But the inference of that Is that the only way that America's continuing security guarantee to Europe through NATO can be maintained? Is if Europeans do an awful lot more for their own defense in and around Europe through NATO. That is the essential uh, dilemma that the rise of China creates for NATO, even if NATO is not going to be the institution which directly confronts or, dare one say, contains Chinese power in the Indo Pacific. It's hard to see given the shift in the balance of power taking place that the americans themselves can contain that threat unless they themselves rely more and more on allies so it's not just that europeans need a strong u.s the u.s increasingly needs strong european allies to to cope with its own security dilemma in the face of of an emerging china
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the real story describing the origins and evolution of NATO. American Prestige focused on NATO after the unification of Germany and how it has become the multi tool of foreign policy. Democracy Now! looked at the dangers of adding new NATO members right now. World Review spoke with a former NATO Secretary General about the options to give Ukraine some protection without full NATO membership. Democracy Now! discussed NATO's role regarding Russia, China, and the need to seek peace in Ukraine. And The Real Story! discussed the perceived threat of China that is not just military, calling into question whether NATO is the right body to deal with the situation. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Real Story, looking at the history of the relationship between Russia and China.
5: During the period of Sino-Soviet alliance at the beginning of the cold war you had a lot of grandiose statements about how eternal this would be and we just heard richard nixon being equally grandiose so it is true that putin and she share a very strong desire not to have their choices shaped by the west led by the united states and they do not want to have their countries defined and morally insulted by a global discourse that they see as led by the United States. So their national dignity, as well as the personal power of both men,
0: requires them to push back against this. And Today Explained, discussing the complications of the Arctic as Finland and Sweden prepare to join NATO.
7: One of the things that you know Russia has liked is that Finland and Sweden were not NATO members, but... Because of this limitation in the Arctic Council, security issues weren't to be discussed there, even if those were precisely the ones that might have been good to discuss. Uh, So how will it change? I think fundamentally depends much more on what will be Russia's desire to have a relationship and what kind of a relationship with the rest of the Arctic countries, the rest of the West
0: To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email to request a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, I just have a few thoughts to wrap up the show today. Quick thought on how we got to now, like why does NATO still exist? This answer usually comes in the form of motivations. So there's the story we tell ourselves, which is sort of like inertia, right? Like, well, we already had this alliance, so we might as well keep it. I mean, sure, the Soviet Union collapsed, but I mean, that doesn't mean we have to give up our alliance. And then beyond that, there are all those promises we made to not expand the alliance because it would be seen as threatening or antagonistic or at the very least sort of a dick move. The most positive perspective you could have on that is that we really never intended to expand NATO, but then all those countries were asking so nicely and we just couldn't say no, right? But then on the flip side, according to NATO critics, the NATO member states led by the U.S. were power-hungry, militaristic bullies who would never think of giving away any advantage they had and figured they'd go ahead and look to expand that power by actively recruiting new members, all while keeping the military-industrial complex happy. Well, with the way systems work, it doesn't have to be either of those extremes. And the bottom line is that intentions, as is so often the case, don't matter all that much when dealing with other humans. So if I were going to try to sum up real quickly why NATO still exists today in the form that it does is because members of that alliance, I mean, obviously primarily the US followed a sort of rational self-interest. And what we didn't do was give a shit what anyone else thought. So it's not like nefarious or malevolent to follow your own rational self-interest. But if you don't care what anyone else thinks, you don't care what impact your actions will have on others, then you can be expected to be seen as a bit of a dick and for those actions to come back to haunt you later on. That's all I'm saying. So it is for this reason that I think that spending a lot of time assigning motive when it comes to something as complicated as international alliances will inevitably, number one, oversimplify the situation, and number two, redirect the debate into a sort of cul-de-sac of accusations and defenses over motive rather than impact, and impact is way more important. For instance, If you make a promise to not do a thing, like expand a military alliance, and then you do that thing, then the reason why you did it only matters a very small amount to the person or people or country you made the promise to. There'd have to be some really serious emergency to excuse the breaking of a promise. Like, you know, you you got a call that your mother was in the hospital and you had to rush to be with her, and so you had to admit Poland into your military alliance, and you didn't have time to call and explain yourself because visiting hours were ending soon. Something like that. What matters a lot more than intention is the fact that breaking a promise turns you into someone who can't be trusted which poisons relationships going forward, which is exactly what happened. And that's what happens when you follow a sort of rational self-interest, even if it's not nefarious or malevolent or, or even imperialistically minded. It could just be this seemed like it made sense for good people and safety and security. Let's just do that. The bottom line is that if you only think about how to benefit yourself and your friends, and you spend no time thinking about the needs of your adversary, you are more likely to exacerbate that adversarial relationship and heighten tensions with them, which is exactly the opposite of what NATO claims they are there to do. And those actions were taken, that alliance was expanded. In direct opposition to warnings that have been made over and over and over again for decades that keeping NATO in place, much less expanding it, would definitely definitely cause problems down the line. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not one of those people who thinks that the actions of NATO are solely or even primarily responsible for the actions of Russia in Crimea or Ukraine. There is a whole lot of history and a whole lot of internal politics at play there as well. If you want my take, check out episode 1474, Invasion of Ukraine, colon, Some Context, from March 4th. And speaking of nuance, I want to mention Code Pink here as well. It was actually a member of Code Pink who recommended this topic to me, and I, I thank them for that. They have been on this story and running their No to NATO campaign for a good long time. That said, I think they have a bit of a messaging problem with that campaign, particularly at a moment in time when opinions toward NATO are shooting up in response to the war in Ukraine, as evidenced most starkly by citizens of Finland and Sweden, shifting their opinions enormously in favor of joining as members. The messaging problem they have is, I think... Most similar to the calls to defund the police. Now, I know and you know that defunding the police is a call to redirect that funding to better ways of keeping community peace. The messaging problem is that not everyone knows that. Well, the No to NATO campaign has a very similar call to action, Though I didn't know it until today, when I finally read all the way to the bottom of an article on their website about NATO, which finally said, quote, They should realize that the only permanent solution to the hostility generated by this exclusive, divisive alliance is to dismantle NATO and replace it with an inclusive framework that provides security to all of Europe's countries and people without threatening Russia or blindly following the United States in its insatiable and anachronistic, hegemonic ambitions, end quote. There. I finally get what they're going for because I'm a pretty open-minded guy. When I heard no to NATO, down with no NATO, dismantle NATO, I was like, I'm, I'm open. Let, let's let's hear it. And I, I just didn't know what was going to be done in its place or if anything would be done in its place or if there's literally nothing good about NATO or if there are some good things, but we'd lose them. But no, okay, it turns out they're in favor of replacing it with something that's better. Great, perfect. I wish I heard that more often. I would love to spend time focusing more on positive visions than the negative things in the present that need to be dismantled. Let's focus more on what we need to build. NATO is an entity with a somewhat complicated history and not a small amount of baggage. It may be that the Alliance has simply outlived its usefulness, but that doesn't mean that international cooperation isn't still a good thing. It just means we need to reassess from time to time and make sure that the tool we're using is the right one for the job, not just the one that we have most closely at hand. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing webmastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com/support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to talk about the show or other shows, the news, interesting articles, videos, books, whatever you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.